Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Ben, and today I'm here with my friend Peter Oslador. Today we shall be looking at the march from Holst's Moore Side Suite for Brass Band. This is the Deconstruct Podcast. Now, today I am joined by a longtime friend of myself, Mr. Peter Osador. Would you care to introduce yourself to the world at large? Okay. Um, hi, I'm Peter Osador. Um, I'm a junior music composition major at SUNY Potsdam's Crane School of Music. I'm just a general all-around nerd. I, I, I don't really know what else to say. I'm not really that interesting beyond that. <laughs> I beg to differ. I have known this man for many years, and he is one of my bestest friends in the whole world. So, uh, Mr. Oslador came to me to, the other day and asked if we could discuss this Moorside suite. Now, normally on this podcast, we don't have a lot of people talking about classical music, mostly because there's not a whole lot of people that love classical music in this world, but but I think there's a lot for people to dive into if they really tried. So what drew you to this piece? Why are we discussing it today? Well, honestly, I played a wind band arrangement of it when I was in high school just a couple times. We never actually programmed it. I I kind of just fell in love with the piece. I decided to listen to the original brass band version, and it was like more exciting. It was very raw. It was, I don't know, there was just this quality about it that really just drew me in. There was like this like emotional quality, this raw, unfiltered sound to it. Honestly, it just intrigued me. So I kind of developed a bit of an obsession over it. I recently transcribed the whole thing for recorder quartet because I noticed that Holst's other wind band works had been transcribed for the ensemble, and I wanted this one to have a transcription as well. The thing that I think really drew me to it was Holst's use of texture and economy, because its form is relatively standard. Its harmonic content is nothing really new to that period. It just, there was something almost magical about it to me that I hope you will all hear as well if you give it a listen. Sorry, I've kind of rambled on for it. Uh, no, it's cool. Love love on the podcast having people talking about the music that they love. I think this is going to be one of the few episodes where somebody on the podcast schools me. Because first <laughs> of all, this man has done a lot of work on this piece. And secondly, I didn't take all that great notes. So we'll see how it goes from here. So a bit of housekeeping out of the way. First of all, depending on how this goes... We may or may not have recordings of this peppered in and out because Holst died over 70 years ago, which is the threshold that's needed to release works into the public domain. So Holst's Moore Side Suite is in the public domain. However, I have not found any recordings that are also in the public domain. So depending on what happens, we may either use full brass band recordings or I may need to introduce a piano reduction It'll be a nice change from having to go to a timestamp at every moment. Spoiler alert, we did need a piano reduction. And also, I'm going to hopefully try to incorporate a newish feature that Spotify has in partnership with Anchor, which is the program through which we distribute this podcast. So 
hopefully, if you're listening on Spotify Premium, after I'm done talking about this, you'll be able to listen through the whole of this Moorside March without having to go to another program. It'll just be inserted into the podcast. If you're listening on Spotify, not Premium, you'll get a 30-second preview, and if you're listening on any other platform, you're just going to have to go and listen to it. I will leave links to where you can listen to it in the description. So Spotify listeners, you'll be listening to More Side Suite in three, two, one. Hi, this is a future editing Ben here. So it turns out that the feature I had mentioned makes it so that the podcast is only accessible through Spotify. And you know, I don't want to restrict you to listening to this podcast on one app. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to stitch the music in. You're just going to have to listen to it on your own. But fortunately, I've dropped links to the music in the description of this podcast. And I'll let you go click that link, listen to it, and then I'll wait for you to come back. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Now that hopefully you've gone and listened to it, let's dive in. Before we actually get into any of the musical content of this, I want to talk briefly, well, maybe not so briefly, about the history of this piece. So, Peter, you had stuff you wanted to say about that? Um, yeah. Holst originally was commissioned to write a more side suite as a test piece for a brass band competition. Essentially, if you're not familiar with how British brass band competitions work, they have their like regular repertoire and whatever, but they also have a test piece that's generally written for the specific contest that is meant to throw a bunch of difficult techniques and different textures and whatever at the musicians to essentially see like, can they do a bit of everything or did they just program really well? Like, did they just do their programming really well? So essentially, Holst wrote this piece, which originally was in three movements. We're going to really just be looking at the third movement, which each movement is a completely different texture, a completely different feel. And, you know, the first one is kind of jaunty. Um, you know, it's like, it's fun. It's kind of almost like skipping or whatever. The second movement is like this slow, expressive nocturne that at points almost devolves into something that I don't want to say militaristic because it's more explored in the third movement, but it juxtaposes like a really cold and a really warm sound a lot in the second movement. And it requires the musicians to be able to accurately not just play, but really be able to emote. Like the balance on it tends to be very difficult and just expressing it tends to not be the easiest. Holst was actually very enthusiastic to do this job. He got his the start of his career as a trombonist. So, you know, he loved the growing brass band scene. And at the contest where this piece was premiered by each of the bands, he was in the audience for every single performance. Like, it didn't get old to him. He made sure to see every band, and he later wrote, um, I'm forgetting the exact quote off the top of my head, but that he was very excited to be there because he said that he felt every single band that played it was just top-notch. He didn't feel like there was really a weak link in the contest. It's become a staple of the brass band repertoire, but transcriptions of it have also entered into the repertoire for full orchestra, string orchestra, 
and wind ensemble. Um, Gordon Jacob did some of those transcriptions if you're looking for them. I think Holston's off the string orchestra one. But essentially, it's it's around, what, a century later or so, and it's still being played, so he must have done something right. You talked a little bit about brass bands. Now, brass bands isn't really a thing Americans have. Like, it's something that, you know, it, it pops up every now and then in America, but it's not a part of our culture as much as it is in other places around the world. So could you give a few words about um, brass bands and what they are and how they influence British culture? Yeah. With a brass band, essentially, it's all just brass and percussion. So like you get something like an orchestra, which has mostly strings and then woodwinds, brass, percussion, possibly like possibly a harpist or a pianist or something. You get a wind band, which drops the strings. So it's just woodwinds, brass and percussion. This is just brass and percussion. So essentially what's interesting about the British style brass band in particular is that it doesn't use any what are known as cylindrical brass instruments except for trombone and bass trombone. So instead of trumpets, it uses cornets. Another thing that's interesting about it is that if you know a bit more about music, all of the instruments except for bass trombone read treble clef in various transposition. So they have like soprano cornet and E flat cornets and B-flat. They have E-flat horns, baritone, euphonium, tuba, and bass tuba. They all read treble clef, which allows anyone who plays any of those instruments to just hop from one instrument to another without having to learn a new set of fingerings, essentially. So if you know how saxophones work, it's kind of the same way. Except, of course, involving instruments that usually wouldn't be written that way. In the case of Moorside Suite, it's 18 separate parts. There's one soprano cornet, but then there are four cornet parts, one flugelhorn, three horn parts, two baritone parts, two tenor trombones, one bass trombone, a euphonium, and then tubas in E-flat and B-flat. And what's interesting is because of the way that the brass band music is written, you cannot substitute the E-flat for an F-tuba or the B-flat for a C-tuba in most cases. Like It's generally understood that the parts will be taken on the specific instrument. So if you know anything about how tubists play, where they're expected to pick the best instrument, the instruments are picked for them in a brass band for the most part. But... Essentially, in Britain, the brass band became a very important part of culture. Um, They're usually not professional ensembles, but they're generally made up of highly skilled amateurs. So a lot of times, either a town or a company will have their own brass band where you'll get maybe an architect's union or a corporation might have a brass band just made up of their employees. Or actually, I forget the name of the ensemble, but one of the big brass bands a couple decades back was from a coal mine, actually, where they'd be mining coal in the day, but at night 
all the players who are in it would get cleaned up and go to rehearsal. I know the Yorkshire Building Society has a pretty well-renowned brass band. So it's interesting because this is mostly amateur music making, but they tend to treat it incredibly seriously and play at a near professional level regardless. It's honestly amazing to think that these people are playing really high level things and competing in competitions and whatever, while they also have full-time jobs in completely unrelated fields, but that tends to be the case. But because these bands are all over the place that any company large enough has one or because of that, they tend to be a pretty big thing culturally because they're all over. And tons of people take part in them, not just people who went to music school and studied their instrument for years. It's honestly the kind of thing that I wish America had more of because it makes playing music more accessible to people after their days of high school band are over. But we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and I try to find information about how brass bands in America died after the 20th century, because there were a lot of brass bands in America in the 19th century. And probably in your local area, you can go back to see photos of people with brass instruments around themselves, but that isn't a thing anymore. I I don't know why. It's starting to make a bit of a resurgence in America. And if you have brass bands in your local area, I do suggest you go out and check it out. This is a Moorside suite, and you had mentioned that Holst was commissioned to write a Moorside piece, which indicates to me that Moorside is a type of music. I didn't do much research on this myself, but... Um, no. No, the literal title is A Moorside Suite, which is kind of confusing to a lot of people. I was kind of anticipating that question. The title is literally just A Moorside Suite. I don't know too much about where the title came from, if I'm being honest. That's one aspect that I haven't like delved into too far all right so now that we've got all the history out of the way let's actually dive into some music here okay i'm just gonna start at the beginning because there's one thing that is very holst if you know any of his other band works if you're maybe familiar with his march from his first suite in e flat for instance just opening with a cornet and flugelhorn unison which immediately just rockets upward. I just love that opening, like the ba-ba-bum-bum. If you just listened to the piece, you would have just heard it. That was put in probably quite deliberately because they just ended a really soft, really slow movement. And all the cornets are in like either low or mid-range. So they need to immediately just change gears to jump up to this like higher mid-range thing. But they also need to change styles and try not to crack any of these notes, which all are indicated to be played very short. So that's kind of like a sign of the commission being like, hey, test them on these things. And then it kind of echoes through the rest of the ensemble, and it just explodes into the main theme. Um, I want to talk about the harmonic structure of this opening motif. What do you think about this particular opening riff, other than the fact that the rhythm is da-da-da-da, which sounds almost like guns, to be honest to me, but what do you think about the harmonic content makes this stand out so much, and why does it sound so much like a fanfare, do you think? Well, I feel like the opening on, like, 
ascending fourths really helps solidify some of that. It kind of implies almost like chordal harmony, even though the piece itself doesn't quite use it for the most part. But also just the fact that all the notes are loud, short, and crisp, and it builds up straight to a high point before it gets repeated in the rest of the ensemble. Like, it's very fanfare-like in that regard. Yeah, and those open intervals reminds me of how the harmonic series is used a lot in horn work. In a few episodes so far, we've talked about the harmonic series, but as a reminder, it's the idea that for every note, there's a bunch of other notes that define the quality of that noise. Could you discuss how how brass instruments incorporate the harmonic series into their works? Essentially, if, if you know about the harmonic series, um, you've probably heard of it through the lens of if you hold any of these notes and then strike the low note on the piano, all these sound. But on brass instruments, and on woodwind instruments as well, but it's more prevalent in brass writing, if you blow harder into the instrument, you essentially go up to the next note in the harmonic series. Like, let's say you're playing like a B-flat on a trumpet, you blow harder, and it brings you up to the F. Essentially, like, to play higher on a brass instrument, you blow harder, but the same thing rings apply. So let's say, like, you essentially play on, like, one harmonic, or in this case, it would be an, an overtone or whatever, you can use the valves to lower the pitch, but then you can jump up to the next one and use the valves to lower the pitch from that, or the slide if you're playing trombone. And essentially, that's what allows brass instruments to play all of those in-between notes. Now, perfect fourths are not found in the harmonic series, with the exception that the distance between the perfect fifth and the octave is a fourth. But one thing that's interesting about the opening to this is that each note is essentially in a different register of the instrument. So it requires the players to have really good lip flexibility, especially once they're playing it like a couple times in a row, like when they do the ba-da-bum, ba-da-bum, bum. So recapping everything real succinctly, the brass, the cornets go da-da-da-da, and then everybody else um, follows that motif rising up into our first main strain. The most obvious thing is the um trying to think of whether it makes sense to talk through the melodic content of this. I think it is because if anyone here knows March form, this is not in what would generally be considered like the traditional American March form. It kind of is. You get your main strain and then you get your second strain, you get your trio, you get a dogfight. But what's interesting is that at the very end, unlike in most American marches, the first two strains actually come back which is more of a British march kind of thing than an American one. So after like the trio and dogfight sections, it brings back the first strain, not just the trio theme at the end. So for anyone who knows about um, American marches, like the marches of like Sousa or King or any of those composers, it might seem a bit weird. I'm trying to think through, because I think every little snippet of melody each change from note to note is important. 
I know that in Amer in Western Harmony, m melody isn't focused on it as much, which is why I like to focus on it a lot here. So the ba 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 ba, it's a firm, solid ground. It's it establishes the fifth above the root, and it gives us a firm grounding in the key. Um, and then there's ba 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 ba. Um, going up to that. Adds a little bit more excitement to it since you're rising up a little bit more on that and then descending ba, 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 ba. Descending down to another note that's in the dominance Which as we know wants to resolve to the tonic home key and that's done with the rising ba, ba, ba. Once again landing on that fifth above the tonic to reinforce that grounding and then ba, 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 ga, da, ga, da. And then with that it swiftly goes through the tonic dominant tonic another thing i want to point out is um this piece was kind of written it almost appears to be really just melody and bass line and then everything else filled in the way that you know about corral would be written but a lot of the harmonies used are not necessarily the strongest because holst tended to prefer a homophonic texture or a texture where everything kind of moves together in a similar direction where like essentially he's moving the chords downward or upward altogether. One thing that I've noticed about this is that in a lot of his writing, more so in the second movement, but also in this movement, he tends to move the bass line, what could almost sound independently of the chords, where the bass line is more of like a separate entity. So if you actually look, the bass line through that whole section, just going which I had to adjust for octaves, but it's literally just a downward scale, and then it just jumps back up to the tonic. It's just a two-octave scale straight down. And a lot of the harmonies through that section aren't built to be the most perfect. They aren't built to be like, here is the tonic, then it goes to the tonic over the third, and then it goes to a subdominant chord to a dominant. There's a lot of tonic dominant motion, but he often chooses essentially imperfect harmony to make each part move essentially in a straight line. So the parts that are going down go down until almost the very end. The parts that are going up go up basically the whole time. And the only thing that really moves around a lot is the melody. So you don't get those like real Bach-like bass lines like bum 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 ba da dum da da dum 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 bum bum ba You know, you don't get those like Bach bass lines that jump around all the time as much in this. It kind of all moves a lot more on its own. And I feel like the contrast really helps make this motive memorable, which otherwise would just kind of seem a bit more mundane if he did anything else with it. Yeah, and I don't think that necessarily all of the parts are chord filling in because, for example, on the solo horn and on the first baritone, there's this which, while it fills things in, it's a neat melody line on its own. But does the lack of functional harmony make for lesser music in general? Is anything sacrificed by having less harmonic content? I don't think so. 
first of all, there still is quite a bit of harmonic content there. It's just a bit less orthodox. And that's partially because Holst was kind of writing during a time when they were moving away from functional harmony. So while there's a lot of like tonic dominant relations and stuff, it just wasn't as much of a major focus. And his later works would essentially do away with it entirely. So this is kind of him like branching out from one thing to another. Like his last work for wind band, actually, I'll make a direct comparison. Hammersmith is mostly bitonal. So part of the band's in one key and part of the band's in another. But this doesn't really do as much of that, but he uses a lot more extended harmonies. He uses like occasional substitutions and he plays around a lot more with harmony. And also a lot of traditional British music tends to essentially use those more homophonic kind of textures, even during the times when most of Europe was focusing on fourths and fifths before like tonal harmony came around and stuff. The Brits were generally more interested in thirds and sixths, and as a result, they tended to have lines that moved together rather than away from each other. He was using building blocks that had already been very well explored, but he was using them in new and different ways. So I think he really knew what he was doing, and it didn't create an inferior piece. I think it actually made a superior piece for that reason, because it's a different sound than what a lot of other people would have been doing. Like, the only people that I could really compare the sound to would be other British composers. Like, if you know the music of Fawn Williams, similar kind of story there. So I don't think it really led to an inferior product. I think it just kind of prioritized different things. So I think we've exhausted what we have to say on that opening strain. Once we've ended the main melodic content, then we have this hammered out thing in the cornets, accompanied for the first time by, if you may notice, snare drum. It's very militaristic. Just the texture of having nothing but the cornets just playing these really sharp, loud notes accompanied by just the snare drum playing the same rhythm, like, which is something that Holst did a lot. He would give the snare drum the melody on his marches, and it kind of created this effect like gunfire almost, as you alluded to um, with the beginning, like the ba da ba bum. I feel like the kind of gives that same military guns blazing kind of sound. But then that's joined right when they go up to those like accented high notes, they're playing like an F major chord in inversion, but with a D flat Lydian scale under it. So is it implying like a D flat major seven or is it just implying an F major over D flat kind of sound? So it goes back and forth really quickly between the like militaristic like quality of like the snare and the cornets and then the snare drops out and the cornets play these slightly longer notes that now are more like back to the fanfare quality so he's not even 30 seconds in yet and he's already rapidly juxtaposing the two qualities that he's introduced and also this is the first time that you ever hear an ascending scale and it happens right as the cornets are leaping up so it's very brilliant it takes it from like a low to mid-range to like 
a higher register thing, even though it brings the baseline back in. So the overall range of the piece doesn't sound very different, but it sounds brighter because the lower instruments are playing higher without needing to actually bring the higher instruments higher than they were. So it fills it out, but it doesn't make it muddy or dark or anything at the same time. It's a really cool bit of orchestration. I don't know. I, I just love it. I love every word of that. And um, I think one thing I want to add is that if you go back and listen, you'll notice that after the on the half notes, I like how the cornets do that. But then at the same time, there's what is that? That is a trombone coming in, adding in a bit of content underneath to make it a little bit more different. Um, and then once we've done that, we return to the first main melody. I don't think we need to go over that over again. But then after that, he kind of develops the theme a bit. He develops it in the horns and one of the baritone parts. And then that's when he brings in another theme. Quoting something there? I feel I I don't know. It might just be me, but I feel like he's quoting something on that because it feels like it's from something else, or maybe I just heard it here first, and then like, I don't know, deja vu something happened. I don't recall finding a quote in here. He easily could have been. Holst liked to quote English folk songs in a lot of his pieces, but at the same time, I know. You said you didn't quite recall playing this, but I remember that you played this with us. So that might just be like some lingering memory of the piece. It, it wasn't that. I, I do remember performing it, but I don't remember if I had um, heard this snippet elsewhere first. Maybe. Like a lot of movies tend to put Holst's music under them before the original film score gets slotted in. So you end up with scores that have similar feel or tempo or even instrumentation to them like if you were to listen to the planets and listen to something like mars you would probably think that it sounds like the star wars soundtrack because that was most likely put in when they were doing the sound design work for like the sound effects before john williams got them the score yeah that sounds about right it, that might be what i'm thinking of um so for those playing along at home, um, that rising note there indicates that we're going somewhere different. And in this case, we're going to the relative major, which is the, it has the all the same notes, but it just moves the center of the key up two notes so that it becomes major. Yeah. He actually kind of teased that earlier. Remember when I said that like he had that, scale underneath the chords that kind of makes you question what he actually is thinking well the first note of that like run in the baritones is the tonic of this new section so he kind of like teased it right towards the beginning and now he's bringing it in and because this theme started as a development of the earlier theme it flows very organically into it it almost feels kind of like inevitable that he's going to go there. 
And while tons of composers use that modulation, it's just the way that he worked into it just kind of flips from one thing to another. It's It feels quite effortless. Yeah. I hadn't noticed that. But now that we're at this second melodic line, the thing about this melodic line here is that by the way that it's structured, these first two measures accent the downbeat through the melodic content. Since you have this da-da-da that's rising up to the downbeat. And then for all the other notes in that measure, it comes back down to where it started. So da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, and then da 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 once again, reminding you that the whole thing is, in fact, still in that relative minor. And then, those three notes bring us into the dominant of this new home key that we've established. And then falling back down to the root note of that chord. Just a little flourish to end off to reestablish this new tonic that we have. And that that jump really brightens it up too. Like it really just solidifies we're going home right now. Um also I'd like to talk a bit about the background there. Um because like, you know, then he just kind of does like a turnaround, but the harmony of the turnaround is quite interesting. You kind of expect him based on just what he's doing in the bass line modulate to the sixth of this new key but he instead modulates to it in inversion which kind of lends a slightly less stable quality but it also allows him to just shift the bass up one note at a time this is also the first section where the bass really moves more functionally where he goes away from like the scalar bass and he just goes and Instead of just having the bass keep hammering out the same rhythm, he, to keep the rhythmic flow going, he brings in another accompanying part, originally in the euphonium. And then, once again, it repeats, this whole thing repeats in the cornet line. Um, so it, it's just a bit of a brighter sound in general. Yeah, he not only moves it to the cornets, which is a brighter instrument, but the accompaniment part moves from the euphonium to the baritone, which essentially the baritone is a slightly brighter instrument than the euphonium. So it does the same thing pretty much. So not only does he put the melody up an octave in a brighter instrument, but he moves the accompaniment as well. And then in bringing in a triangle in the percussion, it just kind of solidifies that he's gone to a different place with the same material but yet again he does this just weird harmonic thing in the bass where you expect it to leap again but instead it just goes up a note and it kind of throws you for a loop but when the theme repeats that's actually what he uses to modulate back to the home key again so he's like essentially he's constantly setting himself up for the next section by just throwing in these small little out-of-place things that he can, like, latch onto a few seconds later. So it doesn't sound like the new idea is just coming out of nowhere. And to contrast the lighter nature of this, he ends it significantly darker, modulating back to the minor key that the piece 
is based around. So instead of bum, 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 ba-dum, you know, all nice and happy, it gets a bit heavier, it gets louder. And it serves to make it so that no one section is ever completely dark or bright. There's always kind of a bit of both. Yeah. And then once again, we have this then there's this lovely little trio section which i did not take that much time to look at so oh it's fine i took way too much time to look at it go off (laughs) then go off okay the section in major that you heard from the intro went to what's known as the relative major where it's the same notes as the original key just a different note is the tonic but now we're going to the parallel major which means the major scale that starts on the same note i tend to look at um essentially key centers through the circle of fifths and essentially you're getting three steps brighter around the circle in this case so in the last one it's just the mode that changed but none of the notes are different now you're essentially three notes brighter and the texture changes as well. It goes into all just the lower instruments in a texture that I can really only call quintessentially British. It has a very like holster Elgar style bass line. Which kind of jumps around a bit more than the rest of it does. But the melody also kind of, rather than being like tightly woven integrated into the chord structure around it it floats over the top almost like just floats over the bass line and while the third voice of the trio hasn't been brought in yet so briefly about the melodic structure of this trio melody there's da, 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 something to establish us in the home key this new relative major and then da, 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 a rising and falling thing to indicate um the dominant which we're now moving away Briefly before we get back to this. Da 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 da. Da da da. And then that rises up to the apex, the top note of the whole trio melody line. Da ba da 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 da. And then these last three notes that of that. Da 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 establishing the sixth the relative minor of this already relative major key well parallel major key and then reinforcing that with but then he doesn't sit on it for too long he just goes straight back into the And that's how he gets back to the tonic. 
like the baseline the entire time is just bum 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 like it's not really anything to write home too much about it's just kind of in service to the melody and also one little snippet that i want to bring out um after the first da 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 the baritones and trombones and and the euphoniums are doing this neat little moving melody line they're moving the same distance but they're starting in different places so you got the baritones going da 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 and then you got this one trombone going da 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 starting in different places but moving the same amount that's going to be a recurring element when this trio repeats yeah um and honestly that just brings back in like the emphasis on parallel thirds and sixths in a lot of Holst's music. What's interesting, though, is if you look at that particular trombone part, even when they get to, like, the apex of it, the trombone doesn't join with them there in octaves. It goes to a third apart instead of a sixth apart, so the bum 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 ba da 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 So it kind of continues just filling in this harmony a bit, but it doesn't really do too much. It, it doesn't really take away from the melody at all, and it tends to go like almost unregistered by a lot of listeners. It's just kind of beefing it up and solidifying the like chord structure. Yeah. I don't know why this specific example is occurring to me, but if you're on TikTok and you're on Shanty Talk, <laughs> if you remember that chain of duets that created that viral rendition of the wellerman yeah if you go through each of those layers because like below each of the videos it says this person is duetting this video and then you click on that link you can go through and see how harmony lines that you can't necessarily hear can be layered in to create a rich texture and each time that it gets layered in you notice it but you can't notice it if it's not there in the first place also the fact that he switched from the third to to the sixth is just important because it creates a leap in the trombone that doesn't occur in any of the other parts. And that leap kind of gets expanded on later in the piece, right towards the end. So just keep that in mind. I'll come back to it eventually. And then when the coronets come in, that's essentially bringing in the third voice of this trio. And where the melody kind of float, floated over the bass line in the first, the bass line itself changes to this like broken octave thing. The broken octave bass line essentially relates itself more to the melody than the bass line did in the previous section. So it kind of helps unify the two into one whole. But then this counter melody comes in against the melody where every other note is a suspension or an appoggiatura against the main melody and the counter melody also tends to interweave itself quite nicely with the bass line so these two lines that started off as independent kind of converge right as the cornets come in lending their brighter sound so to contrast that when they get to the high point in the cornets generally most conductors construct 
the lower brass to play slightly heavier and get like a grittier sound on what was like much more laid back and easygoing first time around. Also, just a quick note, because I've played this part, depending on your conductor, you might be asked to make one breath last for 22 bars straight. Just a word of warning for anyone who wants to play this piece, but that's just me suffering. I'm not gonna get into that right now. But basically, he juxtaposes light and heavy quite a bit without as much juxtaposing the color of the harmonies he's using quite as much. You know, it's a trio section. It's meant to be in contrast with the main section, which, if you don't know much about march form, that's what the trio section is meant to do. It kind of tends to strip everything back to more basic parts, which then get elaborated on later. What happens is he tends to build tension in this section by first bringing in the E-flat cornet, which is higher than the regular cornet, and then actually dropping out the bass tubas for a bit. So the range of the piece just subtly shifts up into a slightly brighter register for a bit before he brings the bass tuba back in, the B-flat bass, right as it gets heavier. And he brings in what looks like a fourth part, but it's essentially just a desk camp where the solo cornet and the E-flat cornet are just holding out this brilliant high B-flat, which is one of the brightest notes on the instrument, while the lower cornet and flugelhorn just reprise the main trio theme before, just a few seconds later, you know, he has the whole, like, big, the triumphant return of the bum, 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 He just dies down here, just almost instantly. Everything just dissipates, it just dies down to a simmer. And that's when he begins kind of bringing in the ba bum like the ba bum bum and playing, he develops it a bit, he plays around, he changes some of the intervals, some of the notes, just peppering it in, in between um, solos from flugelhorn, euphonium, and first baritone and like, Everything is just as quiet as this movement goes, as he begins to build back the more like militaristic aspects of the march. I just love that. So now this leads us back into a key change, back into the original home key and back to the original few melodic motifs, which are expanded upon here. He actually goes by way of two different keys, though. He goes by way of F major and then G flat major, which then brings him back to the key of B flat minor, which I think is really interesting. Because as I said, he peppers in the bum bum. Instead of all fourths, he's filling in his octaves, and that's just shifting him up from one key to another. So once we've exhausted all of the um, permutations of the da 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 and the ba da 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 and da da da. Once we've exhausted all of that, we come back to um da da instead of going Yeah, this kind of happens where, like in an American march, the dogfight section would take place. 
except it's built off of the material from the first string. So it goes, and then the baritones come in, and just like the two parts are just kind of playing with each other back and forth, and that gets turned on its head, the bum 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 gets turned into a bum 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 bum. Which is how he leads out of the dogfight. And also, another contrast happening there, instead of having a descending baseline, it's a dis- ascending baseline, which I think adds a bit more to the suspense and tightening of tension that's happening in this whole section. And what's interesting is the baseline in the bass instruments, it jumps the octave a couple times to keep it in range for them, but he keeps bringing in more instruments on it just continuing the line straight up and the line actually continues until it's in the cornet parts so it continues all the way down from like the bass register of the tuba just one continuous ascending scale into the cornets where it essentially turns itself into the melody bum 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 so it like goes So it's amazing how he essentially turns the bass line into the cornet line. That's pretty rad. And then return of the main melodic line, but with one key difference. And what be that? There's a giant bass drop to a low concert F in the E flat and B flat tubas, as well as the instrument that I think really defines the section, the bass trombone. Just They all just hammer out that low note and also um all of the instruments are told to play very loud and very heavy at this point which you know it turns us like previously not quite bouncy but it has a bit of a spring in its step theme into something that is just it hits you like a ton of bricks even though you've heard that same motive many times already is kind of meant to be like you think I've exhausted this. No, I haven't. And here's a giant bass drop with like the percussion playing a role and just this super low note in the tuba and bass trombone to provide contrast from the other repetitions of this theme. If any brass band or any band in general could get themselves a really loud bass trombone, it is the <laughs> best <laughs> it is the best thing. <sighs> uh. I miss Ben McLaughlin. <laughs> yeah. Ben, if you're listening, we have a job for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the promo material right there. If you can get a good bass drop. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely a moment where the judges will be really looking at the low brass because they've been playing. Everything they've been playing up until this point has been very poised. And this is the spot where they just need to aim for the back wall with their sound and nothing else in this piece in all three movements is quite as just guttural as this so as a test piece this would be a moment where the judges would really have been looking straight into the bell of the bass trombone player seeing if they could essentially blow their face off (laughs) but gotta love it and then three symbol crashes end the whole thing off and then 
were thrown back into content that we've had before with this repeating that again and then but once again with wait is that not a direct repetition when he goes back to the main theme again he takes it a different place instead of bum 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 he goes like to bring you back to the theme of the second strain just seamlessly from the first theme of the first strain rather than kind of having like a cadence there he just goes straight into it just like he did the first time this third and then in reverse order he starts with the orchestration that he used with the cornets when they came in to make it lighter on the theme like it starts with the cornets playing it and then it goes into the horns on the second part of that phrase to simmer it down instead of build it up like it did the first time otherwise it's basically the same thing that you've heard before except the triangle is strangely absent at this point which is kind of sad in my opinion once again leading from this uh third melody into the development content that we had before developing on this which in this case it's kind of lightweight um it's all kind of toning down to this um to one of the trombones going all in the purpose of building more and more suspense because what we've had before is the triumphant melody being blared out by the cornets and like if it's being blared out by that you have an understanding that it's going to be loud but if you take that same melody you drop the volume down and you just if you just bring in these like wisp like chords almost just over it like they just kind of fade in and out over that trombone solo and then it just crescendos a tiny bit towards the end when everyone else just comes in guns blazing on that same theme. Yeah. And then the repeat of that rising up to it's marked in the score silent. And then he takes the theme of the trio and voiced it as a chorale to be essentially the like coda or final section to the piece and at that point you know it's just this big triumphant brassy ending except you know he goes the bum 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 and then that all drops out he brings the tempo up just right in the push to the end and has almost the entire ensemble just play this wicked fast scalar motion straight into the end during the final chorale the like alto voice essentially which is being carried by the lower cornet parts, as well as, I think, upper horn, is playing mostly suspensions against the melody, and there's just that same sixth texture from earlier. So the suspensions from the trio, like the second half of the trio, the sixth in the trombone from the first half of the trio, it all comes back. Every trick that he's used in this entire piece 
comes in at the end to make it feel like he's tying everything off all at once, no loose ends. I really like endings like that. I'm personally not good at writing them. Yeah. And I think that is a very satisfying conclusion to the whole thing, just wrapping everything up. And now I'm going to do what I did at the start so that you can give everything another listen through and you can pick out those elements or even some that we didn't talk about because there is a lot that we didn't go through. There are so many hidden details in here that just kind of fill out the texture. Maybe you can find some of them out for yourself. And so like before Spotify listeners, you'll get the whole thing again stitched in. Everyone else, you're just going to have to listen to this. Spotify listeners, you're going to get this in three, two, one. So, Peter, before we end off, is there anything that you would like to plug? Actually, this isn't a link to my work, though um, I will definitely send you some links to that. I'm going to plug another podcast because you're all podcast listeners. Um, If you have any interest in ableism, disability studies, and how that impacts musicians, there's a great podcast by one of my colleagues at the Crane School of Music. well, one of my peers, really, Tara Allen. It's called um, Breaking the Third Wall Through Music. And I have also been on that podcast discussing autism spectrum disorders and how they affect how someone learns music. Please give that a listen. Tara's doing really great work trying to break down like accessibility barriers in music. I'll give Ben some links to my stuff as well. But if you like podcasts and you like talking about and you like talking about music please give it a listen it's really great for understanding other people's experiences sounds dope as hell i'll leave links to that Ozador's other works and to my own works in the description to this podcast so this has been the deconstruct podcast i have been ben and i've been peter and we'll catch you next time see you later